You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Common Misconceptions. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism that is produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links for all episodes can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. My name is Ashlyn Noble. I'll be your host today, and with me I have Lauren Bailey. Hi. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Not to be confused, Laura Lauren. And <laughs> Jem Newman. Hi. Whenever I'm introducing both of them, I make sure to put to put you in between. <laughs> <laughs> I am not that savvy. <laughs> so, inspired by the XKCD comic where he uh, has written a universe where once a year all of the school children have to read through the Wikipedia list of common misconceptions, we have decided to start a probably yearly tradition of doing a show about common misconceptions. Should have been in February, but meh. Yeah, we're just not that on the ball. That was the misconception, <laughs> that it's supposed to be in February. Yeah. It is per- supposed to be in A common misconception <laughs> perpetuated by Randall Monroe. <laughs> And we uh, happen to be recording this on Easter, so we're all full of delicious food and ready to have a quick, short, happy show. Yay! Oh, nothing Jesus. about... That's a lot of pressure, Ashlyn. <laughs> but it's the day of zombie Christ. Yes. No, no talking about free will and robotic Thank meat God. puppets. Oh. <laughs> hey, that was Hallelujah. a popular show, I'll have yes. you know. We got lots of comments on that show and we hope to get many more on this one. <laughs> Tell us how we're wrong about your misconceptions. Yes. <laughs> so, who wants to start us off? Not me. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna make Lauren start then. Yay! This one is has been stuck in my craw for a long time, like a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> when everybody thinks of, I'm gonna use the colloquial version of this. When when you think of a Viking warrior, what is the first thing you think of? Beards. Beards. Hats with horns. Thank you! <laughs> Laura plays into it. Yes. I, I, I think of really tall dwarves. <laughs> of course you do. They were very tall. I also think of operas. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and though, coincidentally, those are linked. What? Yes! No way! Very much so! So, <laughs> the horned helmet, I'm pretty sure everybody can think of why it would be a bad idea in battle. I don't know, I think somebody swinging a large, heavy weapon toward my helm, um, uh, having weird protrusions on that helm that could be driven through said helm into my skull is a good idea. No, it's an axe grabber. You want to use it to hold onto the weapon so that you can (laughs) stab them. It's like a sword breaker on your head. Exactly. You you point your head at them and you twist as they swing. (laughs) It's also a great thing for your enemies to grab onto and slice your neck open that way. I guess that's a good point. Yeah. Aw, man. There would be no reason to put horns on helmets. The Except that they look amazing. <laughs> Says you. Yeah. I think a plain spanking helm, which is just the basic cross pieces of the metal that nobody can see me doing these hand motions that I'm doing, <laughs> with metal in between, looks fabulous. But the horned helmet, there was a few that were used in ceremonial. Uh, you see one on the Sutton Hoo uh, plackets that there's a guy with horned helmets, and they found some uh, in the Cyprus area. 
Um, yeah, I thought maybe. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I, th- I thought maybe some of the uh, the gods might have been depicted at some point nope. with a nope. That's a misconception too, eh? Yeah. Okay. That's so... based on Stanley. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Thor! <laughs> you make me so Thor. <laughs> so, the horn helmet came to us from Wagner, because the in the um, Victorian era there was this fascination with the Viking culture. But we didn't have the finds that we had now. We had very limited information. Well, they were kind of obsessed with antiquity altogether, yeah, weren't they? they were. But and the Viking culture was a part of this. They mm-hmm. hadn't found uh, any of the boat, the ship burials, or anything. So there was a Wagner opera, uh, the Ring Cycle, and he depicted, you know, the Brunhilda in the the horned helmet. I only know the opera from the Bugs Bunny. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I know so, it's an opera, but yeah. in terms of having heard or seen any depictions, I'm definitely and I didn't, picturing I didn't Bugs Bunny. I did try to pronounce it in the German, because I'm going to massacre that. I'm just picturing, you know, Bugs Bunny with his braids hopping along yep. the yeah, mountains absolutely. right now. <laughs> and I will totally play you the real opera when we get home. <laughs> I'm actually wondering now how much of the like horned helmets that you see on dwarves is just uh, from the ring cycle as well because totally. we know, we know so much of Tolkien's inspiration for mm-hmm. for uh, the whole ring. all of Middle Earth was was from the Norse mythology as well. Mm-hmm. well Norse and some of the uh, Saxon mythology. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of di- there's a difference, yeah. and I could nope. go into right. acres yeah. of delineation between the two because that's one of my my wanks. But uh, yeah, horn helmets, complete myth. Please stop putting them on the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> oh, Going I was, to Gimli. Uh, you got the yeah. Big sta- yeah. I was yeah. in South Dakota, and I stopped in a uh, what they call it a Norse a Norse artifact store, okay. like a Norse Norse. They had everything. I got a um, embroidery patterns book written in Swedish, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you have any hats? Because it was cold out, and it was, you know, South Dakota in May, and I was camping on top of a mountain. And I was dressed like a Norse raider, for the record. (laughs) Uh, And all they had was plastic horned helmets. (laughs) So... Were they they fur-lined, at least? No, they were plastic. They were children's helmets. And I'm like, you got a couple of those kicking around somewhere. I just want a hat. (laughs) I ended up giving a half-an-hour treatise to the shop clerk and anybody else who wandered over because they were apparently fascinated because there was these three weirdos in the shop dressed like Vikings. And but without the horns. Without the horns. And we will have you know why. <laughs> but just talking about Viking culture. And then we went to Mount Rushmore dressed yeah. as Vikings and we were um, more... People were taking more pictures of us than they were of these kids <laughs> in the mountain because it's really boring. Sorry, Americans. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's boring and Vikings didn't wear horns. So yeah. get it straight. <laughs> Uh, I remember we were watching uh, a couple weekends ago, we just decided to watch all of the Night at the Museum movies back-to-back, and a couple of other Ben Stiller movies. That's a weird choice. <laughs> Zoolander! <laughs> um, we finally watched... Did we even finish that? We no, never yeah. finished it. <laughs> anyway. We can do that tonight. Yeah. We were impressed. I think it was the last one, um, where there were all of these... Uh, they were parading through, and they were all coming back into the museum, and there was, oh, you know, Viking, head over to that. And he was dressed appropriately with the right spangin' helm. There were no horns in sight. He was wearing some sort of mangy fur on his shoulders, and that just kind of... It was of... for warmth. We wear mangy furs around the fur sometimes. Dave is not a mangy out. fur. <laughs> <laughs> the fur was pointing out. 
So I have just a little question because I don't know much about yeah. Viking culture. Oh, um, yeah, but, okay, hour? so in the uh, <laughs> just a little bit. So Wagner popularized this idea. Everybody was enamored of this mm-hmm. idea, but there wasn't a lot of evidence. Did the Scandinavian people know what Vikings had done? No. Or did they just not bother to ask the Scandinavian people at this point? Kind of a bit of both. Okay. And it was... Because I can totally believe the second one. Yeah, a lot of the traditional dress is still really similar. If you look at the... To a degree. A lot of the yeah. traditional dress that you see, like, the um, the royals do um, is all from the 1800s. Yeah, stuff. I'm not talking the mm-hmm. royals. I'm talking, like, the... Because there's still a really big tradition of doing, like, the tablet weaving and yeah. and everything else over there. Yeah, but no, I was just wondering if, like, mm-hmm. if there was a, like, if the people living in those areas mm-hmm. actually did have a bit of a history because of descending from that area or whether it was not known to anybody. Well, or... I'm not sure what their take was on that. The only really contact I know are people who are doing serious recreation now mm-hmm. and they wouldn't be caught dead in a horn helmet unless right. they were recreating scenes from the Sutton who, or there's a Danish, I'm just looking it up here, in prehistoric, um, there's a Waterloo helm found in the Thames, but that was from uh, 50 BC. Hmm. And it looks more like a bunny hat. <laughs> mm. uh, this will That's be in the show notes. Awesome, though. Yeah, this will be in the show notes. That is quite um, the hat or helmet. Yeah, sorry. Oh, it's a hat. Metal it's hat. Just a hard hat. It's a metal hat, right? Yeah. There you go. There was later Bronze Age stuff, which is all, which is like 900 BC uh, near Vesco, Denmark. It was found in 1942, and then there was something from uh, the Grevenskage Horde in Zealand, near Denmark, which was again 500 BC. So and these are all super old with these right. horned helmets. Okay. Way before the Migration Era or the Viking Era. Cool. One of the biggest problems with recreating the Norse Age is that we have very little in the way of material remains of clothing. Um, so, like, one of the best pieces of evidence that we have of what they wore is a tiny chunk of material that was stuffed into a boat mm-hmm. to be used as caulk. Yeah, and it was covered so, in pitch. So they, we've taken it out and like spread it out and been like, okay, this looks like it could have been a piece of this, but like, there's so little evidence. So yeah. the guy who insulated the house we lived in on Valor was probably Viking. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Those the, tube socks. The, the, windows were, the windows and the walls were lined with old socks and stuff to insulate them. Well, hey, when, you have, fiber. when you have to make every <laughs> stitch of fiber from, from scratch... You find every use you can for it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. those ones have survived because they were covered in pitch. Covered in pitch, yeah. Mm-hmm. But they were made of, you know, flax and, and wool. wool. So Highly all these things degradable are, yeah. materials. Yeah. The Scandinavian uh, area is not one that's super good for preserving stuff. Like, we mm-hmm. have so much uh, Egyptian stuff because it's a dry, yeah. arid place. Yeah, for sure. And, and we are you trying to tell me that, like, damp places are not good for preserving things? Unless Except for bogs. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have bog mummies. Oh, those are so cool. So you have to get, it's, like, it's like past that point of damp, like, so damp and so yeah. little air, and then you're good. Anaerobic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we can pull out bog butter and still eat it. Mm-hmm. Oh, Which still oh. sounds disgusting, by the yeah. way. Second time I've heard you talk about it, still a lot more appetizing. <laughs> I, it's fascinating. My my real Viking age, or well, I study pre-Viking era, slightly pre, and my wanks are the textiles and the food, because you know I'm a fat chick who likes to wear things. <laughs> so yeah, it's great. If you want to chat early period textiles, I'm your gal. Or food, I'll cook for you. Cool. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so I think we've exhausted that one, and Jem is offering to go next. <laughs> so I want to talk about one of my favorite things, words. That's right. <laughs> Stay tuned for words about words. He loves them so much that I asked him to pick one thing, and he picked a bazillion of them. <laughs> They're re- mostly related. Okay, good. <laughs> they all contain the same 26 yeah. letters. So, uh, we're, uh, we're talking about words and etymology here. English is kind of a weird language. It's an acquisitive <laughs> language, right? So uh, we, we get our start with the Saxon invasion of Britannia in the early centuries of the Common Era, when the Anglian, Saxon, and Jute languages all sort of came together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they formed Old English, or Anglo-Saxon. Uh, the Jutes kind of got shafted there. Uh, and were influenced early on by the Celtic and Gaelic languages already spoken on the island, as I well curse. as... Uh, yeah, yeah, as well as the Latin of the few Romans who were left over after the empire pulled out of Britannia. So so we have our, our, our sort of low German language uh, right there in Anglo-Saxon. And then there was the Norman conquest at the Battle of Hastings in 1066, <laughs> which led to centuries of French rule, and consequently all sorts of weird quirks of our language. Uh, one of my favorite examples uh, is that many of the words we use for animals, cows, pigs, sheep, and the like, have Germanic roots, while the words we use for meat, beef, pork, mutton, etc., are French. And in fact, those are just the French words for those animals. And you can imagine why that would be, right? You know, you have the French nobility asking for the animal, and they say, oh, well, when the animal's cooked and prepared for the French nobility, this is what you call it. But when it's, it's fancier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and in addition to the French influence, you have Latin and Greek and Arabic coming in during the Middle Ages and, and the Renaissance. These are largely, of course, the languages of religion and science. And English, at this point, is a bit of a mess. A wonderful, lovely <laughs> mess. Perhaps because English is so complex uh, and gets words from so many different places, we have all sorts of weird just-so stories that get passed along purporting to explain this or that little bit of the English language. These stories are called false etymologies or folk etymologies, although uh, folk etymology is also a technical linguistic term uh, for something slightly different, which I won't go into. But I would like to go through a few of these false etymologies and explain a little bit, uh, as far as I can, where the words actually come from. Let's start with some acronyms. Modern English is full of acronyms, uh, like laser, or scuba, or shovel. I always forget that laser is an acronym. Yeah, yeah. Shovel? Yeah, shovel. (laughs) Snow and hail, optimal vectorized earth landscaper. You are full of it. A laser, of course, does stand for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. One of my favorite little facts that I learned when doing a grade five science project. And <laughs> Last scuba, year. scuba is anyone? Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. That's right. Woo! <laughs> and uh, just a minor detour. Uh, do you remember the difference between an initialism and an acronym? I do. What is it? An acronym actually makes a word. An initialism you spell out. Yeah. So, IGA is uh, an initialism, initialism, whereas uh, LASER is an acronym. I always get pedantic about that. Yes. Uh, Let's start with... Sorry, Laura. (laughs) What about acrostic poem? (laughs) (laughs) That 
I didn't expect that to go over that well. I guess. <laughs> across the, well, I guess that would kind of be like a like a, an acronym. Yeah, yeah. So we've got our acronyms, but did you know that the word "fuck" is also said to be an acronym? Ooh. Have you heard of this one? Anyone know what it's supposed to stand for? Yeah. Okay, now I can't remember. I've heard, like, FUBAR and all of those. No, well, FUBAR is a, is a real... One of them? But, oh, I read this. But it's I, fornicate under consent, consent of king, king or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, so that... I uh, hadn't heard this until I read this. <laughs> so, so one story holds that the word originated in the 7th century as an acronym for fornication under consent of the king. So I guess it was supposed to be a good thing. Yeah, uh, it meant you were married in the yeah. eyes of the law. You were married, and then you could... Yeah. Uh, so another proposed uh, uh, origin uh, is that when adulterers were placed in the stockade, uh, there was a placard bearing the acronym that was hung above them, mm-hmm. uh, and in this case, it stood for "for unlawful carnal knowledge," uh, indicating why they were in the stockade. In fact, the word consent comes from Latin via French and didn't exist in English prior to the 12th century. Uh, <laughs> similarly, fornication and carnal also have Latin roots and didn't enter English until a couple hundred years. And knowledge wouldn't have had a K on it. Uh, that's probably true. Oh, you know, it might have had a K if it... No, uh, Depends on where. <laughs> yeah, but it might have had a pronounced K. It definitely yeah. wouldn't have had a silent K. Um... Oh, English. Yeah. <laughs> our words, you know, our words used to actually be said ha- sort of how they were spelled. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if you two weren't here, we'd just go down into this knowledge, literal, <laughs> literal hole. You can hand in this, like, five-hour podcast that's nothing, about, that's nothing yeah. but, was yeah. that K pronounced or not in this situation? <laughs> so, in fact, the earliest recorded usage of the word that we are discussing uh, comes from a 15th century poem called Flen Fleece where it is conjugated fucunt, as though it were a Latin verb, uh, presumably Ooh. meaning to have relations, relations. with. <laughs> the uh, false Latinism. I can't remember the word for that. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, um, I love them. The, 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 the funny thing is that the word is actually of Germanic origin and probably comes from the Dutch foken, which means to thrust. <laughs> That's not far off. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, he, here's another supposed acronym. GOLF. Somebody can probably tell me what this stands for, Gentlemen right? only, ladies forbidden. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's what it's supposed to stand for. Gentlemen only, ladies forget, forbidden. Uh, although you'd think that, historically speaking, it should stand for something like, gentlemen only, specifically only the white ones, no Jews <laughs> or Irish either, and probably only if you're a rich doctor or lawyer or something. <laughs> and we're flat. Yeah. It's pretty long, though. <laughs> yeah, I guess it would probably be pronounced like, goso tunjoy po yardalos. Oh, Jim. Uh, in reality, <laughs> the origin of the word golf is uncertain, uh, though it may come from the Middle Dutch kolf or kolv, meaning club, bat, or stick. Uh, the first recorded use of the word golf, interestingly enough, anyone know where, where they found this? It was in a, a, a 1457 Scottish statute listing games that the Scots were forbidden yes. from playing. Golf <laughs> <laughs> soccer. Yeah, also on the list was football. <laughs> Not allowed. It interfered with archery. Yeah, Not it did. Head. They needed to train. Yeah. <laughs> uh, l- let's move on to some other crap. Specifically, crap. You mean it's not a backronym from Thomas Crapper? So, well, this this is not supposed to be an acronym, but it is supposed to be a back formulation. Yeah, from Thomas Crapper, inventor of the ballcock. Woo! But not the toilet. 
No, no. He, although he, you know, he he invented. Uh, he was a plumber, and he invented all sorts of. Uh, he, he brought he brought all sorts of innovations to the the flush toilet, but he did not invent the flush toilet. Uh, yeah, so the, so it's a popular factoid that uh, Crap was named for Thomas Crapper. It's not true. Incidentally, uh, factoid originally meant something fictitious or unsubstantiated that, that is presented as fact, uh, but the meaning is kind of uh, shifted. The word crap actually comes from medieval Latin, crapa, which means chaff. Let's turn this around then. Does that mean that crapper's surname comes from crap? Well, no. no. Yes. Uh, it's, it's actually a variant of cropper, <laughs> yep, uh, which means someone who harvests crops. <laughs> And takes off the chaff. Yeah, exactly. This is actually uh, one of my one of my favorite ones, Xmas. Despite the grumblings of your fundamentalist uncle over Christmas dinner, the abbreviation Xmas did not originate as a secular plan to take the Christ out of Christmas. No, because the X is Christ, right? The X is a chi, which is the uh, the first uh, letter in the Greek formulation of Christos. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not an X at all. Uh, the abbreviation actually goes back uh, to religious texts in the 16th century, and in fact, the Cairo, uh, which is uh, the first two letters of Christ in Greek superimposed on each other, was the de facto symbol of Christianity for centuries. Yeah. Not to com- be confused with chiropractic. Yes. <laughs> uh, ye, as in ye old smith's shop, or whatever. So uh, the word the, or the, uh, English's definite article, uh, was never, ever pronounced or spelled ye in Middle English. Or in, a lot of people use the term Middle English to describe, you know, early modern English. You know, Shakespeare didn't speak Middle English. Shakespeare spoke modern English. Mm -hmm. It was just, you know, Elizabethan formulation. It's a little bit more archaic than our current uh, language. Anyway, he wouldn't understand Old English either. That <laughs> stuff is fun. Yeah, uh, I mean, even like the Middle English of Chaucer, that that stuff, it's it's lovely and interesting, but it sounds nothing like modern English in a lot of it's cases. It's fun to say. It's it funny, is, yeah. and like you kind you get it. Yeah, you, you get it if you kind of hold it back and you kind of look it over a it's little bit. You're like, oh no, I, do, I I see it. I do. Yeah, you it's do the see mad it. eye of uh, yeah, magic eye. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of is because if you start looking at it too closely, you're just like, whoa, there are letters in here I do not. Yeah. Know what That's doing. what happened. I read too much Chaucer as a child. Yeah. <laughs> I'm cooking a, a meal at the end of this month for 150 people based on only things that Chaucer mentioned in his Canterbury uh, Tales. Yeah, in Canterbury Tales and and his other works. But it's all good thing it'll he be delicious. About food a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's for the uh, Winnipeg Early Music Society. So if you're interested, you can look it up. It'll be good. So uh, why do we think uh, that that they used to say ye instead of uh, instead of the Futhark? Futhark is the um, characters from Old Norse. The thorns. The thorns. The thorn specifically, room yeah. is the it's a th for th. Yeah, and it looked like a ye. So uh, <laughs> the uh, it's actually a lot like Xmas. The y is not actually a y. It's a it's a thorn, uh, which is a letter that is no longer used in English but represented the TH sound, and some scripts looked a lot like a Y. Uh, English, of course, would be much better if it had an actual alphabet that maps individual letters to sounds instead of using combinations of letters like TH or CH to make up for its deficiencies. Or <laughs> GH in those crazy... When, why does GH make an F sound? 
Because Why English not? is dumb. <laughs> and there's so many, uh, like, O-U-G-H can be said eight ways or so, something so, like that. So yeah. while we are adding letters to uh, make up uh, uh, letters for these sounds, we should also do away with useless letters like C and Q while we're at it, because they're clearly not pulling their linguistic weight. I would rather get rid of K. Yeah, well, I'm with K you. I like at C least better. is unambiguous. It's also older. But yeah, C's but it's so prettier. Yeah, I like Greek. I'm fine with Greek. C's are nicer. I like C's. Uh, I'm on the C train. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's. And I used to use the thorn if I'm handwriting something out. It's it's a pretty symbol. Let's get rid of diphthongs. <laughs> so uh, we're 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 almost done here. But <laughs> bef- before we finish, uh, we have to talk about the degeneracy Woo! of the Roman Empire. So people are fond of pointing out uh, when talking about uh, how you know, awful and degenerate the Roman Empire was, that the vomitorium was a common architectural feature. Mm -hmm. Uh, Romans were so gluttonous, it said, that they needed whole rooms dedicated to bulimia so that they could go back for more. Uh, This, of course, is not true at all. (laughs) Vomitoria are indeed uh, popular Roman architectural features, but uh, all they were was the passageway uh, through which crowds entered and exited stadia. So that's why I was always... Con- this is what got me onto this weird stuff when I was a kid. Why were the vomitoriums always near the exit? <laughs> I th- remember thinking this when I was seven or eight years old. I mean, why are the vomitoriums near the exit? Why wouldn't you want to do that in private? Uh, also, uh, you get bonus points from me if you uh, decide to pluralize stadia or gymnasia yes. in the, the... The proper uh, way? The... the well, let's not say proper way, because I, yeah. I can't really defend linguistic prescriptivism, but the fun way. Neither you nor Stephen Fry. Yeah. <laughs> but wouldn't it only be stadia if there were multiple? Yes. Yeah. The stadium, plural yeah. stadia. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. like a datum. But we don't yeah. usually see, like, many stadia. There's one. I know. Well, we just need to build more. Okay. (laughs) Let's not build more stadia. Also, uh, you get minus points if you say octopi because you're a pedantic jerk uh, who is wrong because it is actually octopodes. Suck it! (laughs) (laughs) How about platypi? Uh, uh, That that would be platopodes, I think. Yeah, it's platopodes. Yeah, because it's also from the the, uh, Greek. Greek for foot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this brings us. Uh, no wait, to I want to add one more. A lot of there's like T-shirts out there that you can get that say you know polyamory is wrong. It should be you know polyuros or yeah. multiamory. <laughs> or multiamory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's Latin and Greek. Yeah. <laughs> I love those shirts. Okay, multiamory it is. Before we finish talking about word origins, I wanted to share with you one of the most interesting linguistic tidbits I think I've come across recently. Uh, thanks to one of my favorite humans, John Green. Uh, and that is the origin of the word esquivalience. Which means? So the first two editions of the New Oxford American Dictionary defined esquivalience as, quote, the willful avoidance of one's official responsibilities. And the etymology that it gave was uncertain. It said, late 19th century, perhaps from French esquiver, dodge, or slink away. That etymology, however, is incorrect. We'll get back to esquivalience in a moment, but first, let's talk about maps. Oh, good. Maps are copyrightable. I'm not sure if everybody's aware of this, but you can copyright a map. Mm -hmm. The problem is, 
how do you enforce that copyright? But how yes. could you prove that someone else stole your map and marketed it as their own? I know this one. If you're confident that your map is accurate and that a competitor plagiarized it, the thief might simply argue that you are both equally excellent cartographers. <laughs> so what is the solution? Fake roads. Yeah. yeah. So the answer, if you're quite clever and you don't mind confusing the occasional family on a road trip, <laughs> is that you introduce completely fictitious streets, monuments, buildings, or in some cases even towns into your map. Or a fjord. Yeah. <laughs> so when a new map comes out, simply check to see if it features your paper town or trap street. If it does, you've caught the villain in your copyright trap, and justice <laughs> prevails. And, and you're a crappy cartographer. <laughs> as for the occasional road tripper who was counting on a pee break and fill up in Argleton, well, everything comes at a cost, I guess. <laughs> so these sorts of copyright traps, while they were once common in reference materials, they were not limited to maps. And that's where esquivalience comes in. Remember that esquivalience is defined as the willful avoidance of one's official responsibilities. <laughs> <laughs> that is the perfect word made up to catch lazy lexicographers who are trying to copy your dictionary. <laughs> the origin of esquivalience has little to do with French and more to do with copyright enforcement. The word, as I mentioned, first appeared in the New Oxford American Dictionary, but it has since been discovered on Lexico's Dictionary.com and in Apple's built-in dictionary, which I'm sure have never copied any entries from Oxford. <laughs> Let me Apple this. Yeah. Copyright, <laughs> traps, uh, copyright traps were once widespread, but seem to have waned in the last few decades. So in a sense, I guess this is another strike against linguistic prescriptivism. Just because it's in a dictionary, that doesn't make it a word. That is a common misconception. Didn't Google catch Bing doing this at some point? They copied the maps? It is very possible. Mm. Google caught uh, Bing yeah, copying, copying their, their search results. Yeah, I, know, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I thought there was a separate instance where they had copied the, the maps as well. But yeah, I know that if you Googled something with, or if you searched something with Bing, Bing was actually just using Google for a while to do the <laughs> search. Yep. Which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, and Google did introduce copyright taps to, yeah. to catch them. Yeah. So Esquivalience does not show up in my uh, iPhone... In your iPhone dictionary? In my iPhone dictionary. It gives me the option of equivalence, and when I was typing it in, it gave me a requin, you know, French for shark. So <laughs> that's pretty much what... Yeah, they... It's not in there now. It was embarrassing when they were caught doing that, so. Yeah, it's funny. But I mean... At this point, is it maybe has it become a word because people kind of know what it means because of this silly thing? I don't know. There's a word so for is that. It, well, kind of, it must be because I mean, so really, really anything can now a word. copy it because it is a word. <laughs> that's, well, that's the thing, right? Um, as soon as it comes to represent uh, mm -hmm. a part of speech, then it's fair. Mm -hmm. So yeah, how? I guess with the dictionary thing, how do you make your own dictionary? Like, who decides what's a word then? Well, lexographers. You, you get it from common usage from lexographers, right. but you can't just copy somebody else's dictionary. You have Can to get you, your like, own file get and formulate. I guess my question is, so you have to be very careful about how you word the description of an apple, or I, I'm, I'm just well, really well. You have to be careful here. not to read another dictionary and write that as your description. Presumably, if you know what an apple is, it's not hard to, uh, you know, write right. a dictionary entry for it. Okay. But then how do you well, find like, like, all the etymologies for it? Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. It's, uh, well, uh, I mean, dic dictionaries... No, no, no. Well, but you wouldn't <laughs> get it from a dictionary, because a dictionary yeah. is not actually for 
etymology. You'd go you'd go to a linguist who studies word origins, mm-hmm. and you'd talk to them. You wouldn't just get it from a dictionary because a dictionary is just sort of summarizing in a really quick bit uh, what the definition and origin. I wish and I had all my spellings. linguistic books still. <laughs> I had shelves and shelves of them. Best course I took in university. Um, even though it cost me my second minor because I dropped a, a birdie course to get my second minor to take this course instead, but was Greek and Latin roots and English. Mm. Fascinating. And I prefer the Germanic roots because I I can recognize Greek and Latin, and I can recognize the Eastern influence on the language. I prefer to look at the Northern and Western influence on the language. It's more guttural. Maybe I'm just more into the, <laughs> the roots of the words and then this airy. I can't pronounce Greek. We have this discussion. <laughs> Is that all you got? That's all I've got all right. for now. So the reason that I wanted to do this topic was maybe I'm again I'm probably going against the the theme of my own show <laughs> as I often do. <laughs> um, but I was recently informed of something that I have uh, carried around for a long time. Uh, informed that it was wrong. Uh, so we were talking about the heat death of the universe. And I always sort of imagine this as everything getting progressively hotter and hotter and hotter until we all, until everything disintegrates because it's too hot. And it turns out it is exactly the opposite of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, you know, maybe if you were uh, just a few decades out of date and you were looking back at the big crunch... Yeah. Um, then, then that would be accurate. That would be a different sort of heat death. <laughs> death by heat. Yeah. Um, so I never took any kind of physics in high school or university. I could barely... I needed chemistry to get into the, my programming university. And I didn't need physics, so screw that. <laughs> um, physics is awesome. I have, I have a lot of trouble with numbers. Like, I will routinely... Uh, routinely mix up the numbers in my own house number, so physics is really not for me. (laughs) Um, But when I learned this, I looked it up, and it makes so much more sense now, (laughs) because I guess I pictured, like, the sun expanding and and engulfing our planet and yada yada, which will eventually happen, but I guess I thought that that would just sort of be a chain reaction throughout the whole universe eventually, and all of the suns would expand and take over everything, and then there would just be heat everywhere and no more matter. Um, but the universe... <laughs> be a lot of matter. <laughs> the yeah. Sam, the Sam McGee end to the universe. No, and it doesn't make any sense, and I recognize that now, but I didn't. I never actually thought of it. Right. You know, I never put much attention to it before. And so, knowing now that eventually everything is going to slow down and slow down and slow down until there's uh, no more movement and no more heat and at that point when you know atoms basically can't move anymore because there's no more energy that will be the heat death of the universe when there is no more heat the space will have expanded so far mm-hmm. that everything is so far from everything else that nothing can interact yeah basically yeah so that is a thing i learned and i wanted to put it out there in case anybody else thought the heat death of the universe was you know the universe dying because it got too warm. (laughs) Yeah, it's not death by heat, it's death of heat. Yes. (laughs) Much much more sensible. So yeah, again, I don't know if that's a common misconception, because I couldn't find it on the list of common misconceptions. I was kind of hoping. (laughs) (laughs) But it's one of those ones that people, oh, they they giggle along when you say, oh, that'll happen during the heat death of the universe. And people are like, oh yeah, I know what that means, ha ha ha. And nobody does, so... Well, I, not I, nobody. Fewer well, not nobody. I mentioned. Okay, I think I'm I mentioned sorry. it to Ian at one point. Um, that was the and yeah, yeah. Kick I, off for this. I mentioned. I mentioned it to Ian, and he's like, "Heat death. What's that?" And I described it to him, and he's like, 
That's really dark, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrifying. Yeah. It's okay. It won't happen in your lifetime, Ian. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's uh, probably many, many orders of magnitude more years than any of us will be alive. So Laura has our final common misconception, unless Jim wants to go back. I do have another one if we want, but go ahead, um, Laura. So the misconception that I want to talk about, I wasn't quite sure what to talk about at first, but what came to mind is because it's been Easter weekend, so we've had a lot of family gatherings that have included a lot of dessert and so much a loot bag worth of sugary treats for my daughter. And a which, lot of rambunctious children. And a lot of rambunctious children, which got me thinking, does sugar cause hyperactivity? No! no. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad everybody at the table knows this. <laughs> I also knew this. Um, but I hope so as a dietitian. <laughs> um, but it still appears to be a commonly held misconception. Um, well, and even though I know it, I often say, oh, you know, the kids have had a lot of sugar when they're running around. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is something that I have de- I definitely believed when I was younger. Um, even when I was into starting into university, probably still kind of believed it, but didn't care quite as much. Didn't really think about it too much because I didn't have kids at the time, wasn't around kids a lot, blah, blah, blah. Then, of course, in nutrition school, we were learning about the digestion and absorption of nutrients and um, energy production in the body and that. And then we learned that no extra sugar wouldn't actually make you hyperactive. It would just get absorbed and digested. You just get more insulin for it, blah, blah, blah. So that's at that point, it was like a light bulb went off. It was (laughs) wonderful. And so I was happy to tell anybody I could see that, guess what? Sugar doesn't cause hyperactivity. And so I was not greeted with a lot of respect for this <laughs> no. revelation. I naively thought that a lot of parents would be like, oh, thank you. But they're like, nope, you haven't seen my kid after Halloween. <laughs> or something. You haven't seen my anecdote that's coming out of my mouth right now. <laughs> or something of that variation. So I have refrained from saying it a lot lately. Mm-hmm. But um, now that I am a parent and I have a toddler who can be very rambunctious and loud at times, it makes me think of it a little bit more. So... Yes, this is not true. <laughs> it is actually, like as you as you mentioned, it's one of the very few things that when somebody says it, I will not call them on it. When they make reference to the fact that sugar mm. makes kids hyperactive, I'm like, you know, I'm really not in the mood for a long argument right now. Yeah, it's not my hill to <laughs> die on either. Yeah, <laughs> and it's funny because you'd think that, you know... Um, Hot shots about atheism or something like that would be uh, would be a lot more uh, I don't know uh, a, lo- a lot more of a heated discussion a lot less pleasant but no, no no telling somebody that they don't know what what how their children oh, behave yeah. under yeah. what circumstances the people are so yeah. sure yeah, yeah so they're sure. certain and it's so funny too because when you Google this. And I, that's what I did to look for any reference material. I just said, does sugar cause hyperactivity? And all of the hits on the first page, all of them said something to the degree of, no, No. sugar does not cause it. So it is that well established. I mean, nobody, they, nobody says for certain. And there are, there is potentially some evidence to say that there is a small group of children that may be more affected by Mm -hmm. a lot of simple sugars than the general childhood population. So we can't 
one hundred percent rule it out, and but it's not good it is, in any form. Yeah, and, and I mean, and I'll get to that in a minute. There's other reasons to avoid a lot of sugar, but this is not one of them. And so it's so it's such a well known misconception that all of the hits, even on forum sites like babycenter.com and things oh. like that, will say things like, actually, no, it's not true. You know, and, and those, you know, you have to be very careful about the stuff you read on there. So, where did this come from? Um, it, most of the sites, uh, including things like, uh, well, WebMD, but also, um, oh, what is the one? Sorry. I can't remember. There's so many. Medline Plus, which is done through the, uh, the United States government, so it's a fairly reputable site. They um, talk about, well, more so. Sorry. Um, they talk about um, the origins of this myth coming from around 1973 or so. It comes from the Feingold diet, which was a diet made by Dr. Feingold for treating kids with hyperactivity. And the basis for this diet was removing a lot of additives like artificial flavors, colors, uh, preservatives, things like that. And actual added sugars were not actually on that list at the time. But of course, because there's an additive and because there is emerging evidence that they're not that great for you, they got lumped in with that as well. So that's how this whole sugar hyperactivity link got started. So about 20 years after that, in the mid-90s, there were a series of studies done that were um, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, really well-done behavioral studies to test this theory. And they kept coming up that no, Children who got sugar versus children who didn't did not display different behavior. The biggest factor that impacted that was the parents' perception. So mm -hmm. if the parents believed that the children got sugar, they would systematically say that their child was acting worse, was way more hyperactive, wasn't listening, whatever it was. Um, so that seemed to really be the biggest factor. And there. to me, I like pointing out this study in a totally unrelated uh, argument when we're talking about things like homeopathy and they say well it works for my kid you know and, and my kid doesn't know what I'm giving them so you know why would the placebo effect kick in there like because you think it's gonna work yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> yeah. you are engaging in confirmation bias among yeah a yeah. host of other and where factors. do kids get most of their cues from is their oh, parental yeah. Yeah, or yeah. any adults around them, mm -hmm. right? Because it doesn't even have to be the parents, but it could be yeah. some other person going, oh, those kids have had a lot of sugar, you yeah. know? And the parents and other people around the children seem to also negate the effect of environment. Because when do children usually get the most sugar? Yeah. Parties, Halloween, holiday celebrations, mm -hmm. visiting family, friends that they don't see very often. So all of these are very, they're different times, right? So the kids are out of their element. They're exciting times. Usually there's other kids around, which also amps up the energy level, right? So even if you took all the sugar out of that, you'd still have kids that are running around excited and having a good time and just being more... Um, maybe a little less docile than they normally are. Yeah. Even if all you fed them was celery, they'd still be... Exactly, and they did exactly that in the in some of these studies. They, they did some where they fed some kids sugar and some artificial sweeteners. They did some, too, where all they did was tell one set of parents that their kids had sugar. They fed <laughs> none of the kids sugar, and those parents still said, nope, my kids, oh, they're so bad today, or something like that. That's awesome. So since the 90s, so 20 years ago, these really formative studies have been done and published and widely accepted, but it just, this is one of those that just won't die. And I don't know if it ever will. 
I I don't know if it ever will, especially because, as Lauren alluded to, there's lots of reasons why you do want to avoid a lot of sugar, right? You shouldn't pump your kids full of it. None of us should pump ourselves full of it. Delicious cake, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) She says on Easter. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, You just finished off the remains of two cakes that I made for our (laughs) parties. (laughs) Exactly. Um, You know, and it's... There are a host of other effects. There can be an issue with uh, for some people feeling sort of a energy crash a little bit later because there's nothing to hold you from that sugar, right? So you're going to feel hungry. You could get some reactive hypoglycemia, which makes you feel really tired and cranky and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's not addicting, but if, I'm, if I've had a, a week where I've been really bad and I've gone and got a chocolate bar every day at 3 o'clock, at 3 o'clock I'm starting to... Because well, that's that dip in the day. It, it absolutely, and, and it's I, not so. I need so, chocolate. I need sugar. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's addicting, but it definitely ha- activates the pleasure centers mm-hmm. in the brain. And so, if your body has become accustomed to relying on that sugar hit mm-hmm. when you don't have it, it's just like when you don't have your morning coffee or you don't have whatever it is that you normally do. Now right? it's a black tar heroin. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever whatever gets you through the day. Right? Uh, I work for the government. <laughs> um. But yeah, so there's there's lots of reasons to not eat a lot of sugar. There does not seem to be any compelling evidence to say, oh, my kid had a bunch of sugar at this party where there were a ton of kids and presents and pinatas mm. and all these kinds of things, and that's why they're really excited and bouncing off the walls today. My children are just awful. The sugar has nothing to do with it. <laughs> I mean, I, I got giddy after sushi dinner with friends the last week, but it wasn't because of all the starch and the rice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that is my favorite misconception right now. Speaking of awful children, um, I've just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I that's what you took from my segment. Yeah. Children are terrible. Um, I recently uh, stopped working for Mad Science, which is the, the job I've had for the past few years teaching science workshops to kids, and I'm now working full-time at being my own boss. Woo. So, you know, shameless plug right here. If you have any interest in purchasing wonderful jewelry or beads for your own jewelry-making needs, you should search Facebook for Noble and Whimsical. It's the company that I started, and I make cool stuff. You should buy it. Absolutely. Support the podcast by keeping me fed. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> that was my job. Yeah. <laughs> Help me keep her fed. <laughs> Lauren has another misconception for us. It's actually one that I just found out last week. We were watching, I can't remember what the name of the show was. Oh yeah, it was Netflix. a couple days ago, uh, Hunting the Elements. Yeah, it, it was a Nova a really episode. cool documentary that's on Netflix. So yeah. You should check it out. Check it. It's really awesome. It's about two hours and it goes through the periodic table. It's great. Cool. It's hmm. fascinating. It's science for adults who never took chemistry class <laughs> and who really want to learn, but I don't want to go back to university. Hmm. <laughs> yes, I put a personal pronoun in there. It's about rare earth magnets. First of all, rare earth, like rare earth elements, hmm. not rare. Just really hard to extract and really hard to find because of their uh, how they're put together and how. Uh, um, the sheaths around the atoms and that kind of thing. So they're really hard to take out of the earth because you can't find them. But rare earth magnets, they're totally not like magnetic pieces of rare earth elements that you pull out of the ground. They're made in a lab. And there's a whole big process on them. Watch this Nova documentary. It goes into it in detail because it's really, really cool. And I didn't know that. And it has to do with... um, the Curie temperatures and why things work work certain ways, and it's great. 
Yeah, and, it was yeah, really I didn't know about rare earth magnets before. They were digging cool. out just tons and tons and tons of earth and being like, yeah, this these rare earths are all around us. They're just really hard to extract from the rest of it mm-hmm. um, because they're hard to tell apart because their outer rings of electrons are all the same. That's it's their electrons. It's their inner rings of electrons that have different numbers of electrons, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're oh, hard so to like tell the apart. Valence, the valence layer is all full. Yeah. yeah. Oh, So huh. you can't tell okay. what it is until you crack open the shell. Basically, yeah. And then these, the the rare earth magnets, they put as little of this stuff in it as possible because they're so hard to find. Yeah. Hmm. That's neat. Yeah. Yeah. Easy to find, hard to... Easy to find, hard to get out, yeah. Yes. It's hard to differentiate between those two things. (laughs) So that's it. Rare earth magnets are manufactured and they're... It's not actually something that's magnetic in the ground. (laughs) Cool. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. Neither did I. So I figured the world should. Absolutely. All right, Jim, did we want to knock out a few simple ones before yeah. we wrap up? To uh, to cap off this podcast, uh, I'd like to give a few quick hits. Uh, here are some things that are not true. Uh, or rather, some things that are true, depending on how I ended up phrasing them when presenting them. <laughs> so, uh, no, despite what you might have heard on CNN or read in the Washington Post, rule of thumb didn't come from an English law that allowed uh. a man to beat his wife with a stick no broader than his thumb. The true origin of the phrase is unknown, but no one has found any evidence that such a law has ever existed. Okay. Never. I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, also, you need eight glasses or two liters of water a day. Nope. False! Nope. <laughs> Pay attention to your body. Drink when you're thirsty. There are certain reasons you might need to drink more water if you're taking certain medications. Um, but uh, generally speaking, uh, you're probably going to be okay. The... Your eight glasses or two liters of water a day. Also, that includes like fluids like coffee. If you drink coffee, it includes tea. It includes the apples that you eat because yeah. those are full of moisture. The, the original study who came up with that number also included like every bit of moisture that was in everything you ate. Yep. So, and you can also get water drunk. So don't drink too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you don't you don't want to uh, an excuse to not drink more water. Hooray! Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, the belief that everybody should take a daily multivitamin. Boom. False. Unless you have specific dietary restrictions, a broad diet that is mostly plants and maybe a little fish is probably all that you need. Uh, this doesn't go for prenatal vitamins, of course. Those are very important. Uh, and uh, those Flintstones chewables that you really like, those are basically candy, guys. Come on. Well, isn't aren't vitamins just like water? Well, it's good. Uh, Pea some, colorant? So, so, some, some vitamins are water-soluble. Water-soluble vitamins, uh, when you eat more than you need, which is, you know, if you have a balanced, healthy diet, generally you don't if need... If your stores are topped up, yep. then you just pee out the rest. Yeah. Yep. Same it, thing for a lot of minerals. Expensive, expensive pee. pee. So, uh, I mentioned uh, just uh, a moment ago that those eight uh, the eight glasses of water a day that you need or don't need can include coffee. But wait, doesn't coffee dehydrate you? I thought <laughs> coffee was a diuretic. False! As discussed on episode 77, uh, which was all about coffee and tea, if you consume any caffeine on a regular basis, the diuretic effect of caffeine disappears rapidly. Drinking a lot of coffee will make you pee because you're drinking a lot of something. <laughs> Yeah, the whole coffee and tea episode is really good, so if you haven't listened to that one, you should go back and check it out. Episode 77. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, The belief that glass is a high-viscosity, slow-flowing liquid at room temperature. Of of course it must be. That's why old stained glass windows are thicker at the bottom than at the top. False. 
Glass is an amorphous solid. Uh, the unevenness in those windows is a result of the manufacturing process used at the time and has nothing to do with the fact that glass is flowing very, very slowly. Yeah, you can still find a lot of them that were installed, like, quote-unquote, upside down, so the thick part is at the top. Yep. There was a really cool article, though, on um, I fucking love science, I don't know if we can say that, <laughs> about uh, the actual structure of glass recently, and I checked it out because I'm really into glass, um, and it was really cool about how, like, there are, like, pockets of sort of liquid atoms within a sheet of glass and pockets of really solid ones. It depends how many pockets of each there are. Hmm. Anyway, you should go look up at that article. It's really cool. We'll put it in the show notes. Cool. Uh, The belief that you have exactly five senses. False. (laughs) Totally false. There are way more senses. My favorite is the sense of proprioception, which is the sense of where your limbs are in space. You've got little yeah. sensors in all of your joints that tell your body how your 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 joints are bent and where your limbs are, so you can touch your nose with your eyes closed. <laughs> which you just missed. <laughs> I hit part of my nose. He's been drinking too much tea. Yeah. Um, uh, another great sense is your sense of pain. Super mm. useful. If you don't have that sense, oh. it's really awful. I've seen uh, those people on house. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I also like pointing out to, the sense of time, time passing. Yep. Some people have a better one than others. Uh, there's the sense of uh, of heat and cold. That's a, that both that and pain are uh, separate from um, from touch, touch yeah, or sensation. And, and uh, your sense of acceleration. Mm. Uh, that's very important for balance. If you spin around really fast, you know that that's a separate sense. So yep. you have lots more senses that we are not going to go into, but you have more than five. Uh, and finally, uh, the belief that running Windows leaves you open to viruses and malware, but Macs and Linux boxes are immune. <laughs> False. The reason people believe this, aside from trivial fist shaking in the general direction of Microsoft, is that historically malware has it, it has been much more common uh, in Windows environments. You go for the. But that, yeah, that has nothing to do with, uh, with, with the way Windows is built, really. It has to do with market penetration. Uh, look at it this way. If you are writing malware, which system are you going to write for? The one with 90% market penetration or the one with 5%? While Microsoft is still a major target, the increasing popularity of OS X and Android devices makes them prime targets these days, too. Uh, in fact, there are reports that infected computers uh, that are harnessed into botnets now regularly include smart devices on the Internet of Things, including refrigerators and smart TVs. Uh, although these reports uh, have uh, had some problems uh, being totally substantiated. But regardless, Windows is not you know, somehow a, a, a target for viruses because of the way it's written. It's a target because it's popular. And as soon as, you know, uh, people running Linux, let's be honest, guys, we are never (laughs) going to gain, you know, market shares. We're probably going to be safe for a while. Uh, Or people running Macs uh, gain popularity, then they're targets too. Uh, Market penetration is key. Incidentally, if you are in the habit of referring to Microsoft as micro shaft or M dollar sign, please don't ever talk to me. (laughs) How about if I just say that I'm finding Windows 7 to be fairly stable, and it's the first one that I don't hate. Yeah, I, I you know, I like Windows 7. I'm fine with it. Mm-hmm. Maybe I've just given up trying to be different. <laughs> and no more Windows Explorer, or Internet Explorer. Uh, they just, they've, they've renamed, renamed it. it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still funny to think, like, when the 
when the story broke, like, Internet Explorer is being... Yeah, well, they're also... The, the next Windows is Windows 10. They're just... They're trying to distance themselves from Windows 8 as quickly as possible by skipping a, <laughs> skipping a release number. <laughs> One, two, skip a few, 99. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's our show, guys. Thanks for joining me. Thank, Thank you. you. It was Thanks entertaining for and informative. Mm-hmm. And full I of hope, lemon square. Yes. Mm. <laughs> I hope everyone learned something from our endeavors today. Have a great night. Good, Good night, night, everybody. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, who also edited this episode. 